0: So resilience, given that we are a social species, and it's deeply in our evolutionary uh, advantage, our survival advantage to connect, because that's actually, after all, what makes our species so adaptable and so um, capable of living in different environments, is that we connect really well, and yet. When we have setbacks, relational disappointments, frustrations, breakups, when our plans for employment go awry, when we lose an attachment figure, it can be very, very difficult for us to essentially persevere, reconnect, and there are also very strong impulses to withdraw and to essentially disconnect. So tonight, my goal is to explain why we have these contrary impulses, one impulse to withdraw and essentially retreat after disappointments, but also why we have these very strong impulses to essentially try to reconnect, to become vulnerable and reach out for human bonding. And then we'll talk about some of the tools that I hope will tip the balance away from withdrawal towards uh, taking the risk of going back into relational life. On the one hand, after we have a setback, say a breakup or a, we get fired from a job or a business plan goes awry or whatever it is we're trying to do meets a, uh, a really frustrating conclusion, We have well-developed pathological defense mechanisms that encourage us to disconnect. The most obvious is depression, diminution of dopamine in left hemispheric receptors. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that rewards you for engagement in the world, for pursuing goals, for taking risks. Dopamine also is a neurotransmitter that's released when we eat, when we shop, when we take cocaine. Well, I don't anymore, but if you did, that's what also would be flooding your brain. It's a very rewarding neurotransmitter. And in that subsequent lowering, what happens is we feel disengaged, we go into a brain fog, it becomes very difficult to take risks to put ourselves out there, we tend to feel unmotivated. In addition to emotional pathology of depression, we also have midbrains that are constantly, unconsciously scanning our environments. And when they work well, we scan our environments and we look for cues that remind us of important stimuli in our past that's associated either with threat or with opportunity. We're constantly, unconsciously scanning the world around us, looking for friendly faces, looking for welcoming gestures, or looking for subtle facial cues of contempt, shaming, judgment. We do this through what's called neuroception. Neuroception is the capability to perceive the world without it being conscious. We're essentially running these these programs beneath the level of awareness. So we're constantly scanning the interpersonal world around us, looking for cues whether to relax and connect and become vulnerable, or whether to become contracted, suspicious, uh, armored, and guarded. And we do this not by so much listening to words, but by scanning the faces and body language of other people, nonverbal signals. Now, when we expect rejection, the sympathetic nervous system gets activated, and that triggers our heart to race. We start to feel the impulse to withdraw, to hide, to get away, to leave. After we go through a really disappointing interpersonal experience, the nervous system is often pushed past its ability to auto-regulate. What that means is during the course of a day, we're generally bouncing back and forth between the sympathetic nervous system, which has us guarded and suspicious and essentially closed off, to states of broaden and build where we look and we see friendliness or welcoming gestures or, or symptoms of safety, and then we relax. So when our nervous systems are working well, when they're auto-regulating, we're, throughout the course of the day, going from relax to withdraw and back and forward and back and forward. But after an attachment disappointment, a frustration, uh, a feeling of great loss, the entire nervous system itself gets stuck on alert. We can't anymore see, even process, welcome engaging faces. We just feel constantly threatened. And this is in addition to when things are working well we already have what's called negativity bias, where we're five times more likely due to the amygdala to remember negative comments and negative experiences with other people than we are to remember positive ones. In relationships, Gottman's research found that for couples to stay together they have to respond to five bids for attention for every one bid that they don't respond. If you say something critical or dismissive, you have to do five positive empowering if you want that relationship to you want your partner to have to be able to remember you essentially as somebody who's worth sticking with. So the next time you feel like You know, just saying a critical or cost or dismissive remark, you might want to bear that in mind. You're signing up for a lot of fawning. Um, When the sympathetic nervous system is engaged, it's very difficult to relax. You might have found during times of depression or times of a relational wound like a breakup in the aftermath you might find that it's difficult to eat, you don't have an an appetite, or you might find it difficult to fall asleep. Obviously, when our sympathetic nervous systems are engaged and we're hypervigilant, the body doesn't really prioritize relaxing and becoming vulnerable by falling asleep or digesting, which also makes us vulnerable. Finally, going to the most advanced processes of the brain, the left hemisphere, which is the cognitive, methodical, turns life into stories with a past, a present, and a future. Its job is to try to explain what's happening. And when we feel emotionally wounded, vulnerable, sad, so it starts cooking up cognition, uh, uh, i.e. obsessive ideation, really repetitive, intrusive thoughts. After a relational disappointment, it generally tends to be either self-pity or resentment. And both, of course, are not only capable of essentially chewing up awareness and keeping us caught up in disempowering worldviews, but they're also capable of constantly re-triggering the sympathetic because the amygdala not only reads the external world for cues of danger, it also, unfortunately, monitors our thoughts. And so when our thoughts are negative, disempowering, catastrophizing, black and white thinking, you name it, then we reactivate the midbrain and we're essentially telling it again that we're not safe. That's why insomnia can be such a difficult thing to battle because generally the thinking and the prognostication reactivates the sympathetic nervous system which makes it impossible to fall asleep. The Buddha was very aware of all these unconscious processes that go on. In the First Noble Truth, he essentially said that shit's going to happen. That's what the First Noble Truth is. Now, actually, it says, what is the First Noble Truth? It is we will experience old age sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. We'll be disconnected from the love. We'll be stuck with difficult people. Does anybody over here recognize any of this from life? <laughs> and we will not get what we want a lot of the time. So that's the inevitables. And then the Buddha said the second noble truth is in response to the this inevitable disappointments. this what's called dukkha-dukkha. We tend to resist, take it personally, and we try to unconsciously find way out. And that resistance adds even more suffering to life. And it makes it more difficult because the resistance almost invariably boils down to becoming self-reliant, disconnecting, walling ourselves off, not reaching out for help. Virtually all of the things the left hemisphere prioritizes during a relational wound is, I'll show them, I'll do it on my own, fuck them, Fuck everybody else. I'll never date Canadians again. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. It just it co- it cooks up all these ridiculous solutions which wall us off. That's what your left hemisphere does. Dopamine and the cognitive processes of the left hemisphere do not prioritize connecting with others. There's a wonderful talk if you want to listen to it. It's one of the most watched talks on the TED Talks by a neuroscientist named Jill Taylor, and she talks about what happens when she had a stroke in her left hemisphere, and the amazing feeling of connection with everyone, and with the prioritization of, in some way, interrelated with every being when her left hemisphere went out. The only problem was she couldn't speak. And she no longer had a past or a future, but she did have this sense of oneness. And the great Ian McGilchrist, if you want to listen to his talk, it's also wonderful, it's called The Divided Brain, and they turned it into an animated eight-minute clip, and he talks about the left hemisphere is essentially, by nature, Machiavellian. It's simply planning how we can amass and accumulate the the most goodies for ourselves, to protect ourselves, to accomplish the most so that we can have the greatest life story and fuck you to everybody else, right? That's what our left hemispheres want. And it's there for a reason because the right hemisphere prioritizes vulnerable connection with other people. It wants us to be part of. It has no future goals whatsoever, it simply, right now, is looking for safety with other people. So, that's a lot of the reasons why it's difficult to rebound. And yet, the Buddha, the Dharma itself, no matter which tradition you follow, also says that there are very strong impulses to connect, to forgive, to rebond, to become vulnerable, to take risks, to once again try for love and friendship and true connection. In the Mahayana practices, they talk about Buddha nature, which is the sense that when we remove uh, the what's called the three kailasas, the poisons of aversion and addiction and self-delusion, self-fixation, they believe that beneath that, you will find this Buddha nature, which is a desire to connect and to see oneself as not an isolated self, but to see oneself as part of something much larger. In the Theravada tradition, which is what I have practiced in for the last 20 years and um, got my teacher training in, and the Pali Canon, which is our Canon, uh, there's a wonderful sutta, the Suddhata Sutta, where Anathapindaka is traveling to meet the Buddha. I'm trying to say it like Mirza does. He says it so... Sort of, say it again? You have to your breath Yeah. B- Buddha. Buddha. I've been doing this for all my life, and I don't do it that uh a... The Buddha. So anyway, he went to see this guy called the Buddha. <laughs> And uh, this is related to the Buddha. And um, <laughs> so he gets there really late at night and he's stuck in the, the jungle. And it's dark. And for some reason in the Pali Canon, uh, all of the renunciates and spiritual people are terrified of the dark. They always expect to see ghosts. It's just a big theme in there. Uh, so anyway, Natha Bindaga becomes terrified. And every impulse in him is telling him to run back home and to give up seeing the Buddha and what happens is this inner voice pops up and says no it's worth it, it's worth taking the risk, it's worth staying out here, it's worth reaching out for love and trying to connect with the Buddha. Go forward is the the, what the voice keeps saying to him go forward. So That's, I think, a very uh, elegant metaphor for there's also a part of us that yearns to continue striving even after rejections and family wounds and even I've worked with people who come from the worst childhood abuse with beatings and all kinds of horrors that I couldn't even imagine. I had a pretty rough one myself. But still there's this impulse on us that wants to find trust and connection. And why is that? So, of course, we have very rich pro-tribal circuits. If you'd like to read about it, the neuroscientist, neuropsychologist, excuse me, Matthew Lieberman wrote a great book called Social, which talks about all the research that established that the anterior cingulate cortex of the brain is essentially there not only to guide where we focus our attention, but it's there to create the rewards for connecting and the emotional pain that we feel when we're isolated and when we're cut off. It is there to create the broaden and build joy and elation that we feel from when we find acceptance. When the right anterior cingulate cortex has been activated positively by being seen, and that's what deep down inside all human beings most treasure, being seen and heard, because that's our first need when we're born. Not food, but being seen. That's one of the very first skills that an infant has. It has the ability to spot the eyes and the face and track whether it's being seen or not. When we are seen, serotonin levels raise in the brain, oxytocin is released, and the parasympathetic nervous system, which relaxes us, is engaged, and the sympathetic, which makes us armored and suspicious, is essentially deactivated. That simple act of having someone authentically look us in the eyes and mirror our emotions without trying to tell us everything will be okay or just, you know, essentially cheer us up. But when somebody simply looks at us and mirrors our emotions, it meets one of the deepest neural circuits that creates so many rewards for us. Not only that, but the nervous system, even after wounds and even after it's stuck in a state of hypervigilance, the nervous system itself wants to auto-regulate. It's looking constantly, trying to break out of the logjam. A lot of important neuropsychologists and psychologists like Pat Ogden and um, Alan Shore, whose work on the right hemisphere is absolutely vital, has shown that there's part of the nervous system, the, sorry, the nervous system and the midbrain that constantly is yearning to find safety, to find something to break out of the withdrawal pattern. The right hemisphere itself, the more we're embodied, the more we connect with our body, the more we connect with the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere has no plans for the future, doesn't care about accomplishment or achievement, doesn't view our value in terms of how much money we make or how many things we do or how many cool places we travel. Your right hemisphere simply cares in this present moment how safely connected are you with other people that are emotionally available. That's really what it wants, is secure connections. As the maladaptive behaviors of childhood, such as avoidance, coping, dissimulation, which means lying, withdrawal, emotion, masking, and compliance, and you can tell I work in counseling, so this is all the things I deal with, become pathological, which means they become... Constantly addictive patterns, they also begin to fail. So, our maladaptive behaviors that wall us off eventually are built into fail. People who are trained by their childhood to lie to survive eventually lying stops working. When we have avoidance coping, where we don't ever, or conflict avoidance, where we don't ever in relationships bring up our needs or set boundaries or talk about disappointments with other people, those patterns begin to fail. And that's what drives people into therapy. I've never had somebody come to work with me on a winning streak. (laughs) It just doesn't happen. And nobody, for that fact, comes here in a winning streak. Nobody is like, oh, great, things are going on so well. I'm in a new relationship and I just became a travel writer, I get to go wherever I want. So I'll go to Dharma Punks and I'll get a therapist. No, it doesn't happen. (laughs) So there is, in the fact that coping systems that we develop, such as avoidance, withdrawal, masking our emotions with pleasant emotions rather than revealing our sadness, which we learn in early family systems, they're meant to start failing in adult life. They're meant to make us feel lonely and make us feel not authentically connected because we're not really revealing ourselves. We're not being truthful. We're not taking risks in our relationships. So every defense mechanism is built to fail. And if we're lucky, we don't jump from one defense mechanism to another. We take the risk on true, authentic connection. So now I'm going to talk about the Buddhist tools that hopefully will tip the balance from survival and withdrawal after disappointments in life and after emotional wounds towards empowering the parts of ourselves that want to reach out, connect, and take risks. In the, all of the Buddha's lists, Vriya, which means perseverance, is one of the most revered factors. It's a key factor in the five spiritual faculties. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's in the Eightfold Path under the name viyamo. The Buddha noted that to go against the stream, to be honest, available, disclosing, To prioritize connections over financial security, to prioritize harmlessness over gossiping, to prioritize all the things that are meant to uh, that involve risk, especially in a capitalist system, require perseverance, require some effort, require some resilience. So, how do we do that? Uh, one of the first messages and we won't be doing this in our meditation but of course the Buddha talks about Kalyanamitta which is finding and prioritizing staying connected with people who are capable of emotionally mirroring our feelings. That means finding and locating those people that when we talk to them they don't try to tell us what to do or how we should feel or try to solve our lives for us, but simply listen. And simply, at times, even subtly, visually express understanding. When we have that, we get what Franz Alexander, a great psychologist in 1946, called the corrective emotional experience. Human beings learn not through language. We learn through modeling. And we learn through actual, what's called attunement, connecting with other people. Human beings are built to imitate and built to connect and take on the, attribution, the attributes of those we connect with. We're built to emotionally co-regulate. So that simple non-verbal act of looking in someone's eyes, allowing yourself to cry or get angry or feel sad or have any emotional state that you feel and have that state be seen is so empowering, and it so tips the scale towards resilience. Now let's talk about some things we can do in meditation, which we'll do in our practice. The first is um, reflections on those people who are available in our lives, who do care, who have shown up, the Buddha called this kaganu sati and sila It's the reflections because, again, we have what's called negativity bias. We are five times more likely to remember disappointments and people who, you know, acted in difficult ways. And interestingly enough, we see that number five times negativity bias over positivity everywhere, not just in Gottman's research about couples. But it turns out when people talk about other people, guess what? They're five times more likely to say negative things than they are to say positive. So we are really set up to remember the disappointments, to redress this imbalance, takes effort. And one of the ways we can do that is in our practice. We, and we'll do this tonight. We can bring to mind all the people that are honking to make us feel awake <laughs> and feel deeply grateful. <laughs> we can bring to mind those people who have taken the time to show up, to listen, to be on the other end of the phone. Samwega is an interesting practice the Buddha talks about. It's the ability to feel a kind of disgust or shame, but not at ourselves. The Buddha never talks about any skillfulness about feeling ashamed of oneself, but to feel a sense of shame about all the times that we disconnect and retreat and don't reach out and see not only that we're depriving ourselves, but all the other people that we could be connecting with and offering kindness and attention to them. So um <laughs> That's nice, I like that. Uh have some soul to it. Uh, so Semwega is not ever there's no place in spiritual practice for any kind of self judgment. So if you have a tendency towards that, I would urge you to separate this practice. There's nothing about yourself that the Buddha wants you to feel ashamed of. It's simply the action, the behavior of disconnecting, that if we want to be ashamed of anything, it's that systematic giving up of throwing in the towel, of hiding, of not trying. Marana Sati, is the Buddhist practice of reflecting on how little guarantee in time we have. And rather than being a bummer, the whole point of this is to remind us that we have no guarantees and that knowing that death is a, could either happen to us or those that we love, carrying around resentments or self-pity that separate us and isolate us is chewing up what little, what little time we have to, to try to, if we're not going to connect with somebody because they're unsafe, at least connect with someone else. I've done a lot of um, hospice work. I teach at a hospice training center. I, every year, work with at least one person who's got stage four and is pre-hospice. And every time I do this work, any resentment, and I don't have that many, because I'm, look, I'm kind of charmed. I mean, I'm a Buddhist teacher. Who's going to fucking hate me, right? Uh, fuck that guy. You know, he lives off of donations. What an asshole. You know, I mean, it's not going to, I'm lucky. I'm not really treading on anybody's toes, so I don't really have, you know, much to get resentful about. But if I did, believe me, when you do, when you connect with death, when you reflect on death, the resentments, the self-pity, all of it begins to fall away, and it becomes so easy for me to reconnect with people I'm and to to go into and talk about conflict and work through it. Lastly, orienting is simply connecting with all of the signs of security around us to prime our nervous system away from guardedness, isolation, cut-offness. Contraction, this, the, the startle state that we go into when we feel wounded and to go into a state of um, openness. And part of orienting is not just seeing the cues but also moving the body into a state where we're more likely to connect. I was years and years ago, years and years ago, maybe 20 years ago, a few years after I got sober, I was hanging out with a comedian who was very famous, and I asked him about the courage to get up and tell jokes in front of people. And he said, you know, there's this, there's this uh, false belief in the world that the comics and comedians that succeed are the ones that are the funniest or the most charming or the most personable. But actually, he said, the one thing that we all have in common, the ones who actually survived in his business, is that we're the ones who had perseverance. We're the ones who, after we did an open night and people booed us off the stage for the first 20 times, we kept on getting back up and trying. And there's plenty of people that are funnier than me, he told me, that gave up simply because they didn't have the wherewithal to keep trying. So hopefully some practice tonight will push us towards that. So that's enough of my wrapping on and on. We're now going to actually do all of these practices in meditation. So I thank you for listening. So closing the eyes... Part of the work we do in meditation is to disconnect with the left hemisphere, to disempower it, which means we're going to try to, for a while, switch off the narrative function in the brain that thinks in terms of me, how am I doing, what should I be doing better, the judging critical achievement mind. So the first thing we want to let go of is setting any... Specific goal. Whatever your meditation turns out to be is perfect. Don't try for a state of magical calmness and tranquility. Just work with whatever state is there. Don't strive for anything. Just try to be with whatever your experience is. And just doing that can switch us out of that judging critical state. Setting an intention to not evaluate anything and if the mind constantly drifts away from what we're focusing attention on, just patiently keep bringing awareness back again and again and again and again. each time feeling patience, accepting, kind, each time you wake up, it's, in some way similar to the Buddhism awakening. After all, he didn't, in his awakening, simply come out from a deep sleep. He awoke from the thoughts that constantly, the virtual reality thoughts, the lingering obsessive ideations, so, if you have to do that a lot, that means you get to have the experience of awakening a lot. To further empower a reconnection with right hemispheric processing. We do our meditation with interoception, which means feeling into the body. Try not to visualize how your body looks. Try not to visualize yourself at this point. We might do some of that later on. But at this point, simply feel into your body. And if you can feel sensations associated with your head, sensations associated with your shoulders, and sensations associated with your buttocks or hips, then see if you could bring those sensations in alignment. That's how you get balance not by adjusting your body theoretically or by just some sense, but try to align the felt energy associated with impulses in the shoulder, the eyes twitching could be a good marker for the head, the shoulders, and the hips, or the buttocks. If possible, gently tilt your head a little bit back, so it's like you're looking up at a slightly tall building. And the point of this is to discourage slouching your head in front of your shoulders which, and your chest, which is not only painful, but very often that's the first stage of falling asleep. So for the first 10 minutes, we'll just, 10 to 12, we'll just sit with a sensation that we're going to try to hold in mind. And that sensation or object can be entirely up to you. You could use the sound of the room, and this is a wonderful room for sounds. There's cars, honking, traffic, rain, air conditioner, and fan. Working with sound allows awareness to be expansive. And if possible, to empower awareness, it's wonderful if you can let go of the idea that your mind is inside of your head. Everything you're experiencing right now even the sensations you consider to be outside of yourself, is actually happening in your mind. So your mind is not limited in that sense to your head. Everything you're aware of is in your mind. So try to let awareness be truly expansive and holding everything that's present. Now, in addition to this, if you'd like, you can either become aware of the contact sensations with the cushion, your hands touching your thighs or the ground. You can feel the clothes in your body. if it's difficult staying with sounds and the sensations of contact you could also just be aware of your breath the body expanding and contracting knowing when you're breathing in and knowing when you're breathing out based on the actual felt stimuli of movement in the body and One way to stay with the breath is to count inhalations and exhalations. So think one on the in, two on the out if you'd like, three on the in, four on the out. When you reach five, you can start counting back down, four on the out, three on the in. So between the breath or contact and the sounds. Just see if you can stay with present-time sensations. The more embodied you are, the more you will feel yourself naturally inclined towards perseverance, resilience, opening up. It's just the natural processes of the right hemisphere. So at this point you can let go of the effort you're putting into holding something in mind or in awareness. Just allow the mind to still be spacious and open and present, but you don't need to keep sounds or the breath or anything in awareness. So first, as a kind of orienting and somatic practice, just remind ourselves that we're in a room surrounded by caring people. Nobody here is judging us. Nobody here wants anything bad to happen or is in any way judgmental of what we're doing. So let's see if we can move into a body shape and posture that is associated with broad and build, which is the, one of the ways that clinical psychologists refer to the state of opening, reconnecting. So, for example, if you practice tightening your shoulders for a moment, you'll feel how armored and tight and how restricted it is. But now if you drop your shoulders and gently pull them back, so opening up your chest, and you can feel a subtle change just from doing that in the way we relate to the space around us. If you take a moment to tighten the belly and you can see that again the armoring, the guardedness the the lack of security but then if you soften the belly and just relax and breathe out open up the chest release any tightness in the buttocks and without forcing any inauthentic Smile, but see if you can promote a smile from within the face and see if your, the mouth just moves into a more relaxed position. Very subtle embodied priming can change the disposition we have towards other people in the world. There's a lot of research into somatic work. If you feel any tension associated in your body with a recent event, don't try to get rid of it. Just be with it and allow it to be there. Create a safe space for it. Now in this open... Body, I'd like you to bring to mind someone that you care about or someone that you believe would be there if you needed a friend during a painful experience. Try to visualize how this person looks holding in your mind's eye their face and their face is looking at you You can see from their eyes that they're taking you in. They're tuned. They're available. Even an expression that denotes appreciation or care on their face. And as you hold this person in your mind, just in your thoughts, or underneath your breath, just think the words, thank you. I care about you. I'm grateful for you. Letting go of this person, and bring up somebody from your past, from childhood, or from school. A friend, a teacher, a companion, or somebody in your family who was truly caring. And hold them in your mind. It doesn't matter if they're no longer with us, alive or dead. Just hold them in your mind. Reminding ourselves of the value of connection in our lives. Seeing this person again, if you'd like, whisper thank you. Feel that presence, that connection in the chest feel in your chest that sense of being accepted, being seen, being cared about. And if that feeling can spread a little, let it spread. Or if it's just a little sensation, just let it be that. Bring to mind a time that you helped someone, that your presence, that your care meant the difference to someone else. See that person that you cared about, that you opened to, that you offered your time and your attention to. And just thank yourself, noting and acknowledging the value that we have when we connect, knowing how much healing each of us can do. So let go of the images and now return your awareness to the body and just find your breath. Just note the body breathing in and breathing out. And then remind yourself that one day this body will breathe no more. And that we have no idea when that will happen. For every minute of our lives that we take for granted, planning, lost in thought, there's a body comprised of so many organs, sinews, arteries, veins, lymph systems, immune processes, All involved keeping us alive. And that, like all deeply intricate systems, we are vulnerable. It's not our fault. We have no guarantees. As the Buddha said in the Five Daily Reflections, I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. I am of the nature to lose all that I cherish, all that I have, all that I really, truly own, are the qualities of my actions. And when he talks about those actions, He prioritizes those moments that we reach, we we persevere. Knowing our fragility, is there some resentment? Not that we could put aside, but consider taking a risk to Or is there somebody that we could push through our conflict avoidance and try to establish a more authentic bond? Is there something that we've been putting off that would make our lives feel more purposeful that we could do knowing how little guarantees we have? The purpose of Marana Sati, awareness and reflection on death, is not to do anything other than to encourage us to take skillful, empowering action. Finally, knowing all this, bringing to mind the times where we, not in a healthy way, disconnect and hide, but the times we've given up, have turned away from connection. Have turned away from offering ourselves to others just as a friend and just see if you can feel some sense of deep understanding that these are behaviors that we want to rely on less in our lives. While it's appropriate after disappointments and wounds and losses to regroup, to reconsolidate, to withdraw for a little while, but the tendency to give up on entire opportunities to connect, communities, other friends. See if we can feel just a sense of how much of a waste that is given how precious human connection is. So at this point you can let go of the breath any awareness you have that you've been holding on to And whenever you feel ready, open your eyes and just look at the ground in front of you and take in light and color of the floor. And the point of doing this is to integrate body awareness and feeling awareness with sight. Very often when we open our eyes, if we look around and take in the room full of people, we disconnect from our bodies and we become overly attached to our cognitive, planning, methodical minds and we disconnect from the part of ourselves that's embodied and emotional which is so important So, see if you can develop a mindful awareness where you hold both your body, your breath, sounds with awareness of what's going on outside of you and awareness of your thoughts So, thank you.